Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Paul Griffiths, director of Paynes Hill Park, a beautifully restored 18th century landscape designed by Charles Hamilton. We discuss the transformation of Paynes Hill, the emotional reopening, team motivation, and the benefits of pre-booking. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Paul, welcome to Skip the Queue podcast. Hi Kelly, thanks for having me. It's really lovely to have you on. So Paul and I have chatted a few times. We've been we've been kind of Twitter buddies for a while, haven't we? That's how we first yeah. sort of got introduced. How you meet people these days, isn't it, via Twitter? Absolutely. And then we've had a chat and now Paul's very kindly agreed to come on to the podcast to share all about Paynes Hill Park. But we start, as ever, with our icebreaker questions, Paul. Are you mm. ready? Yeah, nervous, but ready. <laughs> I've gone easy on you, don't worry. Right, yeah. okay. When when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, probably a professional footballer, awesome. but before that, an astronaut. Oh, quite different. And so football, so I know this about you. You're a big Charlton fan, aren't you? Yeah, I'd have been you know, playing up front at the Valley, but yeah, no. I wasn't good enough to, to play for the park side, let alone make a um, professional debut. But no, that was my dream for years, to be a professional footballer. Oh, and then the astronaut just didn't happen? Didn't happen, no. Never did make it to space. Space Mountain is about as far as I've got. Yeah, <laughs> Same. <laughs> okay, this is another retro one. So what is the most embarrassing fashion trend that you rocked? Oh, that's a good question. i tell you what I had and I don't have any listeners who remember these, jeans with pictures of the Flintstones on. Yes, And I would have been about 12 or something at the time, and you had, like, Fred on one leg and Barney on the other or something like that, and they were really trendy for one summer. I think we're probably around the same age because, genuinely, I had those, and I can remember... Yeah, I had these. They, they, yeah. What was that about? No idea. I remember being really excited on a holiday. We was on a holiday camp somewhere and there was a little market nearby. I'd find them in the market and buying them. Really <laughs> excited by this. Various other dreadful things. I remember wearing dungarees for a while. I'm thinking I was really trendy. But from a bloke, that's obviously a bit of a strange one. I still wear dungarees now, Paul. So, yeah. you know. That's what I said. That's, what that's I okay. Him, but yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this question before, like this morning before I asked you, and thinking, what would I answer to this? And I thought, well, it would be the bros era for me because Ooh. I had the the grosh tops on my shoes yeah. and I had a denim jacket that had like a massive like patch of bros on the back of it as well. What a loser! But now I you see, I... what I find really weird, right, is that people in office haven't heard of bros. I brought them up as a cultural reference point at some point, and people, younger people, haven't heard of them. They just didn't. No one's heard. Of it. I was trying to explain the whole brosette thing, and people having watches on their shoes, and just. Everyone was looking at me like I was... Uh, and I was DJing somewhere once. Um, uh, that's a completely different story. But put on, Ooh. when will I be famous? And the floor cleared. No one knew it at all. Oh, no. Note to self, don't play brass at a disco. Except if I'm there and I'd have been... No, you'd have been right, right, I'd have been right in the middle. <laughs> OK, all right, one more of these and then um, and then my your unpopular opinion. If you could have an unlimited supply of one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ooh. 
That's a good question. Hmm. Probably McDonald's breakfasts. Oh, Paul, they are the ultimate hangover cure. You can't go wrong with a McMuffin, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, Double sausage and egg. With bacon for me. That could be an unpopular opinion in itself, Paul. Well, couldn't it just, yeah. (laughs) What do you have as a McDonald's breakfast? (laughs) Um, On that note, then, I want to know what your unpopular opinion is. I'm going to say that I just don't get the point of Instagram. You've got Twitter, you've got Facebook. Why do you need something else? I just don't get why you need another channel. Surely to Twitter for work and professional stuff. Facebook's great for your fun stuff. Why do you need Instagram? I don't get it at all. Oh No, I feel like this is going to throw up some debate, Paul. I do not agree with you on this one. So this is definitely an unpopular opinion. Yeah. I find Facebook a bit negative. Whereas Instagram, I'm just kind of in my little happy world of like posting up all my lovely things it just feels a bit happier a happier place to me it's less ranty yes see where you're going yeah it's just i just tried it for a while and i was talked into it by a good friend and former colleague who said oh you really want to do this and after about a week i thought how am i going to run three different things trying to put three different things on so for me it's easier to separate my life i've got friends and old colleagues and things on facebook and then everyone else on Twitter. Okay. So so everyone, when you get promoted to Facebook, you know that you're Paul's real friends. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you for sharing all that, Paul. I really appreciate it. So, gosh, I've got so much to talk to you about today. Um, I've been looking at your background. Oh, that's scary. In the, uh, the kind of attractions and heritage world. And gosh, it's very impressive, isn't it? So you're currently director of Payne Seal Park and director of Visit Surrey. Well, a director, one of the board. So one of the board. Yeah. So okay. I've got a fabulous chair and about seven or eight board members who do an amazing job. Fantastic. Um, you've been head of ops at the Mary Rose Museum, head of visitor operations at London Historic Properties at the English Heritage. You guest lecture at Southampton Uni in contemporary tourism. And in 2018... You were awarded an honorary doctorate in business for services to tourism, heritage, and conservation. It's not a bad list, is it, Paul? Sounds good when you say it like that. Yeah. It? <laughs> Wonder who you're describing. <laughs> so I want to know where this love of the sector has come from, because you've got such an impressive background in it. Do you know, it's, it's a really easy answer. I went off to uni to study leisure management. At that point, I was thinking of going more into sort of sports uh, sort of leisure world so maybe running you know after we talked about earlier on about what do you want to do when you grow up well I knew I wasn't going to make it as a professional footballer but for, well could I work in football like could I work in the offices could I become a commercial manager of a football club could you do that sort of stuff so I went off to study leisure management and at the end of year one we had to do a sort of month's work placement you know when they sort of head out for a month and I couldn't really think what to do and in the end approached a few tourism attractions because I sort of got a bit more into the sort of tourism side in that first year because we were doing it was a modular um, degree so we were doing like four different subjects every term free and it was very much like schools you know it was three terms and we do from four different subjects and I wrote to Heber Castle um, and they accepted to take me down there for a month and I was down there with a chap called Piers who was the visitor services manager or visitor operations manager at the time just had an amazing job so I spent this month um shadowing Pierce, who I still see occasionally now he works for Tate. Well, he did, last time I saw him, he worked for Tate, so I hope he still does. Um, 
Otherwise, this could be a really difficult episode if he, if he <laughs> doesn't anymore, yeah. But he last, so I saw, I often bump into him, it's like Albert events and stuff, which is absolutely fabulous. But no, I spent this month with, with Piers, it was just brilliant. So we, we put on flower shows in the castle. I can remember driving this funny little van, I'd never driven a van before in my life, and I was sort of thrown the keys and told to go and pick up this, uh, you know, lovely old lady with all her flowers because it was like the local WI doing a flower display. It was just. You know how fabulous events can be in, in our industry. It was just brilliant. The weather was fabulous. You know, Piers' job involves sort of wandering around. That'd be little I don't mean wandering around, but going from tea room to shop to admissions, making sure everything's working right. And I just thought, this is just brilliant. This is what I want to do is in a fabulous historic setting, talking to people, dealing with loads of different heads of departments. And everyone was really lovely in the same way that most people in our industry are really lovely Very so true. everyone everyone you bumped into around the table was, was just utterly fabulous so I went back to union at this point we had to choose our um sorry this is quite a long answer Kelly apologies um <laughs> but we then had to choose our um a pathway which would specialize in so you then had sort of leisure management as half your course and then your pathway as the second half and and you could have done sort of rural tourism straight leisure management there was a more legal side and I chose to do heritage management so that sort of swayed my um, my degree. And then, so my degree was in leisure and heritage management. So fabulous thing to have. Um, and then after leaving, just wanted to get a job in the sector and was quite lucky, just, just got a job in English heritage. My first job was sort of making the tea for the quantitative hours and booking their travel and just working in the office as basically the dog's body is the only way I can describe it. But it was a route in. And EH's rules then was that they would try and recruit most jobs internally first. So you'd get a weekly jobs file come round, and I'd open it eagerly every week to see what was available. <laughs> and then got this job um, at Downhouse, home of Charles Darwin, which hadn't opened to the public. It had just been taken on by EH. And we we had this amazing sort of two months getting ready for opening and then throwing the doors open to the public and all the fun and games that went on then. It was just... So from there, I just stayed with English Heritage for, gosh... 15, 16 years, something like that. Thankfully, just moving into different progressive roles, which was fabulous, and ended up as area manager for London. So I had the entirety of London with 12 sites around London, um, really spread out as well. So you had like Kenwood House up in on Hampstead, which is where my office was, um, Chiswick House and Marble Hill in West London, as far afield as Tilbury Fort in Essex, out in sort of towards the east, um, the Jewel Tower, which was the oldest surviving part of the Palace of Westminster. It's a bit, it's a bit that you always see behind people who are being, when MPs have been interviewed on the news, the Jewel Tower is always just merrily behind it. So we managed to move, when I was there, some signs to be just behind where the interview was. It's perfect uh, product placement for us. But yeah, it was an amazing job. I, I just, I spent most time travelling from around. I was rubbish at diary management. So I'd find myself agreeing to be in Kenwood in the morning and then, Downhouse or Elton Palace in the afternoon, so you know forever turning up late to play. It was just yeah, but great, and I, I loved it. And it was, it, yeah, say so I was there for well, gosh, fifteen from ninety seven to twenty twelve. So what's that? Fifteen years, isn't it? So wow. yeah, that sounds incredible. What a place for an office as well. That mm. spectacular place for an office. Um, and just going to big up Essex as well because you know Essex girl. So Til- Tilbury massive. Well done. The thought that counts. <laughs> Um, I so now you're at your new role this role tell us a little bit about the park and how you've come to be there and, and, and what you're doing there yeah so after I think I spent five six years down at Mary Rose as you, as you mentioned earlier then 
came here in November 2018. I must confess, I had sort of heard of Pain Seal, but I didn't really know it. And I think that sums up what its problem was right. so much that, you know, even local people didn't know it was here. I came in in November, as I say, it wouldn't be fair to go into details, but there have been a lot of changes um, at Pain Seal and a lot of the team had, had moved on. And, and so I was left with a smallish team and then we were able to recruit some utterly fabulous new staff as well. So, you know, myself and our, the head of finance started on the, exactly the same day. We both arrived in our cars, parked up, getting our little boxes out with our mugs in and everything else that like you do on day one um, and, and set about, you know, trying to make changes. And Payne's Hill itself is, is, a, is an 18th century landscape garden. It's 158 acres. We have the most amazing views. It was designed by the Right Honourable Charles Hamilton, obviously in the 18th century, um, who'd done some grand tours around Europe and then came back and set about building and, and creating this quite sensational uh, landscape garden, which includes a number of garden buildings or follies, as a lot of people would call them, you know, uh, towers, crystal grottos, hermitages, um, temples, you know, two different temples, in fact, a, a ruined abbey, so built as a ruin. And, and guests in the 18th century would walk the route um, and it was designed that people could um, get their easel out at any point and paint because every view would be picture perfect. Um, this is a very quick potted history. I could talk for hours on it, but I won't. But it, it was lost. The gardens were sadly lost after the Second World War, where after the um, they'd been used for sort of training and, and development of, of troops, um, a sold off piecemeal. Um, and it wasn't until the 70s and 80s, well, the 70s really, that it was a campaign to save Payne's Hill, it was really, you know, recognised by particularly local garden history experts that what had been one of the first and most finest landscape gardens was lost. It really was a completely, you know, overgrown uh, mess is the only way I can describe it. Um, and very fortunately and quite um, far-sighted for the time, the local council purchased 158 acres of the land right. uh, through negotiation, compulsory purchase, etc. And the trust was then formed because the council realised they wouldn't be able to fundraise because who gives money to local councils? So the trust was formed and we were given the um, the, the park on a 100-year uh, lease with peppercorn rent and basically told to restore it back to how it was in the, in the 1700s, which is what the trust has been doing ever since. And the trust will be 40 years old next year. So that's a, that's a very potted area of where we are. And today whilst I don't think the restoration work will ever be completed because the second you turn your back on it, a tree will grow behind you or something, you know, work we need to do. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm being rude about people who before, and I'm not, I promise, but um, you know, the site may become a little bit insular, uh, hence people didn't really know of it. It wasn't really managing to push itself enough. Um, yeah, it wasn't really connected to a lot of the local, you know, or, or national tourism industry things that we all know work so well. And, you know, in this last nine or well, six months, whatever we've now been through in the whole lot COVID situation, how much we've all worked together. And, you know, Painter wasn't really connected in with any of those networks. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I wanted to do was obviously make it more well known uh, and get the name out there a lot more. So, Chrissy, who's my head of marketing, you know, has been doing an amazing job of pushing the story out there and, and getting it in so many different places. And we've been getting so much amazing coverage in the latter part of the summer. We've got on BBC News, we've been on ITV News, and really great coverage for the park. Um, one of the first things we did when, when I arrived was was to do a quite a major piece of um, 
rebranding because what we didn't have was a brand. We didn't paint or didn't have a strap line. It was just, it was some type. Well, if you Googled it, then you'd come up with about 12 different names. Most of them were given ourselves at some point, but whether it was Paint Hill Landscape Gardens, was it Paint Hill, the Hamilton Landscapes? Well, of course, no one's heard of Hamilton. So, because he didn't really do much else, unless you're a real garden history fanatic, you wouldn't know he was. So, you know, we, it didn't really work. So we, we utilised a, a consultant chap called Scott Sherrard who did an absolutely sensational job of pulling together trustees and, and volunteers and local, we got local industry people, the head of tourism in Guildford along and all this stuff and did a few workshops and Scott then used his, his you know, years of experience and skills and came up with this phrase, Paynes Hill, where the walk is a work of art. And it just works so well. And we've been able to use that in all our promotion and marketing. And it's just given us something to always hook ourselves onto is that we are where the walk is a work of art. Because, you know, you are walk, you have to walk. Everyone in the 18th century had to walk around. It's the, the way you get around Paint Hill. And as Hamilton described it as, um, you know, where you could get your easel out and paint, you can now get your iPhone out and get your Instagram picture. You see, wherever see? you go, I found a use for it. <laughs> There's always a link as well. I love this. There's always a link to my weird questions somewhere yeah. in these interviews. Gosh, Paul, how can I just ask, how long have you been in the role currently? Uh, nearly two years. So November I started, November 2018. Okay. And so um, I'm guessing that a global pandemic wasn't something that you, that you were ever expecting to have to deal with as part of your, in your second year of, a, of employment no. there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about about lockdown um you know what it was like what you've needed to implement since you've been you know reopen and 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 yeah let's talk about like what demand's been like because the message has been very very clear the whole way through outside is safe so my assumption and I know we've chatted is you've probably been quite busy since you've been back open yeah it's 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 been a very interesting time hasn't it for everybody and none of us um saw this well I mean maybe some people did I didn't have it on our risk register I didn't have it on any of our planning you know we'd often talked about you know high winds and storms and floods and fires but global pandemic I don't think was up there on any of our lists was it and that point being global I think is the most remarkable thing you know I've got a really good friend who's the development director at uh, the San Diego Museum of Us and and he and I would sit regularly chatting during lockdown on zoom and you, you just got the same problems it was so bizarre really you have exactly the same you know what you're closing and what you do how you reopen it was just bizarre to be sitting chatting someone the other side of the world literally having the same problems um we went into lockdown and you know we it was a it was a worrying time as it was for all of us so you know myself and, and yo my head of finance we sat and we played around with business plans and figures and stuff and at one point, this is before, you know, it, and, and when you look back, it really did come quick, didn't it? You know, you look back on that. And I looked at my diary recently for something completely different and thought it was only two weeks earlier. We were out for someone's, uh, someone, one of our teams leaving for like, maternity leave. And we went, we all went to the local pub, had yeah. a nice meal. We were all sat around the table and that was like three weeks before we were closed or two weeks before we were closed. Blindly, that was, you know, I was at a football stadium. I was at the Valley the week before football was cancelled. 20 or 1,000 people sat around me without really feeling anything concerning. There was a lot of people washing their hands a lot more. In fact, it was the first time at football I'd ever queued to wash my hands. But, you know, <laughs> it was just not saying men normally do at football. Um, but, yeah, it was, um, it was it was a really strange. So we had all these business plans, you know, and there was a genuine, genuine fear the charity 
painter wouldn't survive because we're an independent charity you know we receive no government funding we're not part of the trust or anyone else we are our own little independent charity and there was a genuine you know look okay so if we close for three months four months whatever it might have been you know you were hearing all the rumors um we won't survive we'd have maxed we'd have cleared all our reserves and we'd be owing the bank lots of cash and we'd be trying to close the place down and we, was, well, we can't do that um luckily before we had to close um the job retention scheme had been released so we were fortunate to go into closure knowing that that was there and that was savior number one i think because we were able to make 80 percent of our team um on furlough um and isn't it funny i've never even heard the word furlough 12 months ago but we, we i can remember some discussion in the office i'll work out how to pronounce it are you <laughs> furloughed 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 yeah what is this word that now suddenly everyone's writing that um so we were able to do that and that really did set us up to say, right, okay, so we can, we'll use a lot of our reserves, but we can get through a potential free four month closure and still be alive. Um, we then launched a, a Save Paint Till campaign and that was a really fabulous thing that we did. And that was, you know, our head of fundraising, Karen and, and Christy, I mentioned earlier, head of marketing, really pushing the, those messages out. So we released a lot of footage that hadn't gone out before with a real clear message with voiceovers. I did a few recording voice messages from from home and they were either put over videos or I was just talking to camera like I am now saying why we needed help. Um, and we raised about 30 grand in the end through that wow. campaign, which was brilliant. Um, 10 grand of that was one a foundation uh, picked up. We hadn't applied to them. They picked up our campaign and said, we really want to support Pain Till. It's so important. Blah. So that was a brilliant start. And all these little things, um, Steve, my head of... Um, visitor and commercial services come up with this idea of um, of selling our, our own wine our own vineyard so we always sell wine um, and we make our own gin which is made from botanicals from the kitchen garden so all of the botanicals come from the kitchen garden and the little gin kitchen in Dorking which is a little startup business turns it into the um the product and it comes back in these lovely jars so we we did a delivery service around the local area a number of volunteers who were happy to come and help because we rely very on volunteers although we'd shut the stood all our volunteers down we just sort of anyone happy on their you know in their car to nip around the local area delivering and and we just kept couldn't sell enough we, we you know we, we sold so much of this gin and, and wine and delivered it it was brilliant i think for people it was a way of supporting us and also um getting a great product at the same time everyone's a winner you know that so so that was great so we got about 10 grand in the end for sales from gin and wine so all these little things kept edging away at it whilst at the time we were obviously planning reopening we'd been one of the last places to close we literally were open on monday the 23rd of march and it was only that night when boris said at eight o'clock wherever it was he said it you know, we always did these messages really late, didn't we? That yeah. you'd have to change your plans overnight. Um, so that, so the announcement there was like, we've got to close. And I, was, I remember sitting there. And funny enough, I was putting my son Barney to bed. And I was sat with the iPad just writing to the trustees as he was dropping off saying, we're going to have to close. We, we can't you know, pull this off any longer. But what we had done is we had a little practice for social distancing because that weekend before and going into that week, when things like cafes could only be takeaway. So we re configured our tea room to be a takeaway only service you know you needed to have social distancing and one-way systems so we decided to introduce it so we had a little practice which was great um and it meant that we knew how we could reopen so we were very lucky in the sense that when therefore we started planning our, our reopening um we'd had a bit of a go and we knew what would work so we were probably had a little advantage on some of our friends at other sites who maybe hadn't had that 
that trial to see what happens. So we had to still amend it a bit further. You know, we, we, we sort of closed the shop and brought people out of the shop. And then there was all that sort of, could you open the shop? Could you open the shop? Um, and, and we reopened, we ended up reopening on the 28th of May. We had four days for members. Um, the first few days we opened was just, was really emotional. I felt really emotional having people back in. My team did. I, I actually remember during lockdown, because we would, although we were all working from home, we'd all pop in occasionally to check phones and just do little bits and pieces and also just to make sure everything was all right and, you know, just check on everything. And I came up with my dog and I walked the dog around the grounds with not a soul in there. And there was palm in for, wow, this is quite special. I'm walking around Payne's Hill and there's not a soul here. But then the main part of me was like, this is really sad because I should, I feel a bit weird. There should be people here. I want public and people and stopping chatting to members and visitors. But what was really emotional was the response we were getting from members who were coming back. There was two particular different incidents. One lady said she'd not been out of her house for, for nine weeks. And this was the first time she'd come out. Wow. And that was like, wow, that's felt, you've put a lot of trust into us then because yeah. you're coming here on your first time out. And the second woman, this was really quite emotional, said um, that the, 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 the stuff we'd sent out, like videos, pictures, because um, we were doing lots of blogs, because obviously you weren't seeing the seasons. Um, and people love, you know, they'd seen a bit of the daffodils with Miss Love and the bluebells and snowdrops. All this had just gone without anyone yeah. seeing it this year. And then we had all the chicks and all the wildlife giving birth to all their little ones pottering around the lake. And we were able to put lots and lots of pictures out. And this woman's come up and said, all the stuff you put out is the one thing that's kept me going. Oh, gosh. Oh, and you're just like, oh, oh. You know, we're a little, we're a tourist attraction. And that's not, you know, normally how you, I'd never been, you know, thanked so much for basically us doing my job because we'd got the doors open and people just kept stopping saying, oh, thank you for getting it open. Um, you know, just for, and it just carried on. And we opened to the public on the 1st of June and the numbers have just been phenomenal. Um, I think because we've been very public on how we'd, done the social distance inside of it so people knew before they came you know we did a little video very basically filmed but it worked really well just showing how you know how you were going to come in which, which was your room where the toilets were because we closed our main toilets because I mean you'll remember Kelly but that was the subject on everyone's lips wasn't it how well, do you do toilets big issue um, yep biggest issue we were very lucky of course because we we're outside so we closed our main toilets and put some posh portals in um and people liked them because it was one cubicle you opened the door went in did your business came out and off you went you know bit of a quick hand sanitizer and off you went sort of thing so you know so we can we and it, and it worked really well um and and yeah the numbers carried on i mean august was great september was good october has been good yeah so it's been you know it's just for us it's this whole when will the bubble burst is just um in terms of numbers we just hope it won't but it's been very difficult planning yeah as I know it is for all our colleagues and friends that we chat to you know you can't really realistically start planning events and things for next year because you just don't know what you can do you know how many people are going to come to a wedding how many people are going to be able to come to an event you know things like that I I've got so many questions Paul thank you for sharing all that because it's just it's, that little story about that lady has really just took it, it's just made my heart just pump a little bit it's just it is I can completely understand why you were so emotional about that it's just it's so heartwarming isn't it you know you forget yes. how much places mean to people you know what what it means to them I think we we I've never been in a job I mean I've been in this industry I've never done anything else as you, as you talked about earlier I've always worked in attractions and 
I've never been on first name terms with people before in an attraction and people will stop me to ask how I, you know, I had a bit of a knee. I used to do quite a bit of running. I haven't run properly for a while, but whilst, I mean, literally talking 5k park runs here, not, I'm not saying up on marathons or anything. <laughs> so people will say, I had a bit of a knee injury and this chap Reggie now stops me to ask how my knee, you know, it's just really oh. nice so, because people see us as being part of the, you know, it's where they come and, you know, we do have people who come every single day. They come and walk the dogs, they stop and they have coffees and they, but part of their experience is chatting to the staff as well. You know, it's... Uh, ah, is that something new since since lockdown then? Or did that happen before as well? It definitely happened before. I think during, since lockdown, I've certainly found I've got chatting to a lot more people. I don't know if that's maybe I've changed. I don't know. It just feels that maybe I'm just getting to know people after I've been here for two years. And I, I think because I... And this isn't, you know, I'm not meaning this in a trumpet blown way because I was sort of as director fronted up a lot of our campaigns mm. to, you know, appeals and was doing video, you know, filming videos of me talking, saying we really need support, please. And we had sort of a number of ways that people could support us, one of which was if you remember, please stay being a member. You know, don't, um, please don't leave us and go, please renew. Um, we made the decision very early on that we would add some time on to membership and went out there. And I think... Yeah because we maybe got because we've got a lot smaller membership base we were able to get our messages out very quickly to people and tell them what we were doing and i think because we are a small independent charity with only one attraction we were only making decisions for one place which i yeah. think was hard for some of our friends and colleagues that you know where they've got hundreds of sites or whatever they were having to consider all sorts of different scenarios weren't they where we were only having to to the one. Yeah. Can we I want to ask about membership actually. So this is well membership and locality are two were two really key topics at the visitor attractions conference. Yes. What we were hearing is that in 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 a lot of attractions people purchase memberships while those venues were locked down and we were yeah. seeing something like a 23 to 25% in increase in memberships across some attractions. Did you find that that happened at Paynes Hill? And has your audience changed as well? So do you have more people that are coming back that are locally based now as well? Uh, answer the first part of the question straight away. Yes, we did have, um, a, we managed to retain our members and even saw some growth during lockdown because it's one of the big things we were pushing, saying that when we reopen, you'll be able to come out and see Paint Hill and be able to enjoy the landscape. And, and I think we certainly have seen a lot of people joining since we reopened. We because of our smaller visitor numbers and the bigger, and because we're only one site, we, we made a call very early on as well that members wouldn't have to book in advance. And that really helped us because I think we gained a lot of members because they quite like that flexibility. So if you're a day visitor, if you like, you, know, you want to buy a day ticket, you need to book a slot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been great. And, and there's a number of things to talk about on that. But for members, I think not having to book meant that, you know, they could just have that flexibility to come when they liked and stuff. And I think that's really helped us push those members. The challenge, of course, is we need to keep those members because my trustee board won't expect to see a dramatic drop in visitor numbers. And they'll be asking me quite rightly questions of what we've done. So one of the things we're trying to plot now is what can we do to really impress those members that if when we get to 12 months from now, you're not having to pre-book anywhere else anymore. And, you know, although I'm starting to feel like this is going to be going on a lot longer than I think any of us did think. Um, and, and that's, yeah, I uh, just had a number set aside there. What, what, why I'm saying that is because I can think when we reopened in May, I was making decisions based around a summer attraction. Mm-hmm. And I'm now have reopened year round and we're now having to think, well, actually we need to give some thought to heating and keeping people warm. So, our 
volunteers and front of house team, we we took out. They normally in the pre-COVID days at Painsville, you came into the shop, which also doubled up as a visitor centre, like so many sites do. And you'd show you buy a ticket at the desk, and in you'd go and have a lovely time. Whereas we decided to, to not make people go in through the shops; they didn't have to go inside. So we bought bought a couple of little pods uh, and put them outside, and and there's there's a screen and stuff, and, and people could turn up the membership card or the tickets and, and show, and then off they go. And I'm sure so many of people, but now I'm having to think, you know we're getting into deep into autumn actually um we can't stick two volunteers outside we even however many hats and gloves they've got because it's going to get wet and cold and i hadn't thought of that in may because i didn't think we'd still be doing this right. here we are in autumn and i think a lot of people were probably in the same boat those who opened early particularly and um, you know that actually we we weren't thinking that far down the line um the second part of your question kelly about different audiences i we don't have a great deal of data in the past. Painsill sort of went a bit GDPR bonkers and got rid of everything. Right. So when Christy came on board, we had about 500 people on our database. It's now up to about 10,000. So, you know, we're actually building a supporters, you know, a bank of supporters now who who's brilliant. Um, we've certainly anecdotally seen different audiences this summer. We saw a lot more younger people during the height of summer, particularly, you know, if lots of places were still locked down. Lots of people sunbathing and sitting around reading, you know, bringing little chairs and reading books for the day. And traditionally, our, our dwell time was an hour to an hour and a half, but people are now spending half a day, if not a whole day. You can That's see great. families turning up with full-blown picnics, um, you know, tables, tablecloths, you know, all sorts of, uh, and putting themselves in a spot for the day. And the kids were going up and having a lovely time. It's nice, lovely to see. The only problem with that is our car park um, really struggled, of course, without having the turnover. And we had a few complaints from members, and I totally get where they were coming from, but there's not much we could do about it, where they were turning up in the afternoon for their three o'clock dog walk to find the car park full. So, yeah, one of those things we just have to keep managing and uh, working on. Thank you. I want to I go back a little bit, actually, because you've mentioned pre-booking a few times, and, it, and it's <laughs> definitely a topic that, well, it's a, it's a very key topic, mixed opinions on it, I think. I personally think that pre-booking is a brilliant thing and I want to know how you feel about it has it worked for you do you think and would you like to keep it yeah it's definitely worked and yes I'd love to keep it um it, it's been great and it's been particularly great during this time because we're managing numbers um so we had a weekend in August uh, sorry October um where we had 1500 people in um and that was because uh, we were sold out, sold out, paint still sold out. I, mean, you, I never thought when I joined, we'd see the sign saying paint still sold out, which is lovely itself. But it has enabled us to manage the numbers. It's enabled us to make sure that, you know, members aren't having a poor experience. Also, people are turning up. Uh, one of our biggest problems is we are very weather dependent here. Um, and if it's wet, we tend to have a much quieter day. So what we're finding is if, if it's raining now, people are still turning up, but they're just putting on the waterproofs maybe under their breath cursing their bad luck, but actually walking around with an umbrella and getting on with it and having a nice romantic walk in the rain or, you know, under an umbrella, cuddle up, whatever. But yes, I'd love to keep it because it has meant that numbers are, are coming in. Um, yeah, I mean, it was brilliant. I remember when you, in your podcast with Carly, too, and you, I think Carly used the example of Warner Brothers, you know, in Watford, and I was in that same boat because um, when they went, opened, and I can remember 
being in a seminar where people were talking about it, saying it's pre-booked only or something, no one's ever going to come. And of course, as we know, you've, since it's opened, you've not been able to get a ticket for it for love nor money. It's, yep. it's, what a success story. What an amazing attraction as well. And, you know, despite running a, a historic landscape, I find myself always looking at those bigger attractions as places that we could just learn so much from, you know, the, the service and the, the just everything that these places do, I always think is so good. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that there's been a behavioural change, right? You know, people kind of, they're okay to pre-book now because it's an expectation of what they need to do to go and visit the place they want to go to. And so I can't imagine it being difficult to, I just can't imagine why anyone would want to take that away if you've already changed someone's behaviour to purchase in advance. It doesn't make any sense to me. So I think that they'll... No, I agree with you completely. I can't see why you... The only thing I think which would take it away is if there is, you know, people are upset about it and there's a demand from the public, they want to just get that flexibility. But, I mean, I can't deny it. There's some times when I have really got frustrated with the lack of flexibility for places. Like, my little lad Bonnie desperately wants to go swimming and yet we just cannot get booked in to go swimming. And now, in the past, we'd have just decided on Saturday morning and I was go swimming this afternoon and rocked up to one of four or five local swimming pools and gone... And had a lovely time. And the worst case scenario is they'd have said, oh, it's a half an hour wait and you've got a band for a session and you went and sat in Costa or whatever and had a coffee and then cracked on when it's your time. But, you know, now not being able to make those decisions, it, I think it's just, it is a shame. But I think we're very different on that fact because we're not massively limited. You know, we, we do have a limit and we have sold out a few times, but on the yeah. majority of days there are tickets available. I think it's what you said earlier as well about people, the length of time that people are spending there. Now, actually, your venue is a day trip. It's not just I'm going to pop there for an hour and walk the dog. People are changing the the, the amount of time that they're going to spend there. And, and then it becomes, I don't know, there's another thing about pre-booking that makes it a little bit more special. Yeah, do you know no, what I mean? Right. You've you've yeah. got to plan your, you know, you've got a plan in advance. You're going to do it, and actually, you've got that build up of excitement because you, you've, you're going there. I think that's quite nice as well. Yeah, I think that's why we also saw all these very very luxurious picnics as well because <laughs> people had planned amongst yeah. two or three friends. You know, obviously no more than six, but had planned to come and meet. And you know, we were seeing lots of people. I was saying earlier with tables and chairs, but one of the chairs would have a little birthday balloon on it because obviously people were coming to do that rather than yeah. go to a restaurant or a pub and that's particularly before they reopened and obviously you know now obviously it's difficult we'd like to see our friends in other hospitality parts of the business supported and you know but there is still a nervousness isn't there about people wanting to do things like that yeah and that, there, there is you know it's, every day the news now is full of more and more stories of where this could go and this isn't going away is it as as much as before we had a question from um one of our lovely regular listeners richard g on twitter um, and he wanted to know how you kind of shared your vision and motivated your team to realise the vision for Payne's Hill. And, and I guess part of that is, you know, how have you kept your team motivated during during the last few months? Gosh, they're two really good questions. I, I think I mentioned earlier that we've been able to recruit quite a lot of the team because there was, you know, there was there was. The people that were here when I arrived really wanted to drive the place forward. I think a number of them wanted to change it for some years and hadn't been able to. And my philosophy has always been about trialing stuff. Let's give it a go. And, you know, I often see that, you know, rather than sit and write a lengthy business case, I'm not really a massive fan of writing big lengthy stuff, but, you know, you could um, you know, give it a go, trial it. And actually, if it works, you think, well, actually, it's brilliant. Or if it doesn't work, you can quietly, you know, close it away and 
we'll never talk about it again and pretend it didn't happen uh, unless something has gone disastrously wrong, of course, but we wouldn't get that far. Um, so I think in terms of motivating the team initially, it was all just about, you know, people wanting to take the place forward. I made it very clear that, you know, I think there was lots and lots of quick wins we could do just to, to transform the place and give it a tart up. Um, I wouldn't say I was a yes man in, in the sense, but I will try and say yes to good ideas and, and say, well, let's give it a go or let's see how we can develop that and let's see how we can take that forward. And certainly getting everyone together and on board and, and sharing things, I think, you know, it's so important, isn't it, that people know what you're trying to achieve and and buy into it. And, you know, you get people on board very early on. So in terms of the vision, of course, things like, as I was mentioned earlier, the, the work we did with Scott, everyone was involved with that. The entire team were involved with that and feeding into it at some point. So everyone... Payne Hill, members of staff, lots of trustees, lots of volunteers, everyone had almost signed up in blood to because we'd all been part of doing designing that new strap line, that thing. So actually taking that forward, and everyone knows that you know we've got to make Payne Hill financially sustainable. It can't survive, you know, it can't survive without being sustainable, and it hasn't been for some years because the only years when you look back that Payne's Hill made a, a sort of profit, if you like, is where very generous donors in the past were writing large checks. And those people aren't always around because, and there's more of a demand than, you know, so we know. So, you know, we've got to make our operational side financially sustainable so that if we're getting visitors in through the door, we're generating enough money to pay the staff and cover the costs and stuff. So I think there was a stark motivation in the sense that, you know, we have to make this place work and, and let's really try and, you know, have some fun while we're doing it as well. And I think that's, you know, we work in a track, we work in an industry, which is making great memories for people and giving people great days out. And you want people to be leaving going, what an amazing place. Um, and there was a lot of quick wins, you know, signage needed changing. There was no guidebook. Um, there was nothing for people to buy and take away and learn about, you know, there right. was, the tea room was quite bland is, is, you know, the right word. So we've now put some, you know, try to create a bit of a sense of place. We've put some um, quotes up on the tea room wall from where Payne Hill's featured in either literature or people's comments. You said two presidents of the United States have visited Payne Hill and, and Adams gave a great quote about it being the best piece of art he'd seen. And so we've got that up there and, you know, Payne Hill features in War of the Worlds. And so we've got a quote up from there. There was a wonderful piece in a, a newspaper about how Queen Victoria used to like to come and promenade here with Prince Albert. So yes. we've got that. You know, so actually creates a bit of a sense of where we are and that we've arrived. And um, and in terms of motivation, I think people have motivated themselves. And I think there's been a real, you know, there was a desire to make sure we got through this. Um, and since reopening, there's just been this outpouring of, of people and, and love for playing so which I think has driven the team on. I think there has been a lot of exhausted people. And I, I think you're seeing that across our whole industry, aren't you? Because there's a lot of people who've worked very hard without much of a break since since March and I certainly saw it in the face of some of my team who've been working all the way through the you know, six or seven it's not been on furlough and I'm not saying for being on furlough was easy from any stretch of imagination because I don't know if it was because most people actually wanted to do stuff and wanted to help and a bit like when you had Rachel and Carlton on the other day and Rachel was saying on the podcast and she wanted to be doing stuff and you know, couldn't. And I, and I think that was the same for my team. And, and it, you know, they wanted to volunteer. They wanted to help Lucy looks after our volunteers, wanted to keep doing the volunteers newsletter. And of course, we couldn't let her because she couldn't be doing work for Paint Hill. And I think there's 
whilst I understood why the regulations came in, it, it, I think it, it affected charities in a way because they couldn't let people just still help and mm. keep the thing afloat. Um, so yeah, I think it's been a, it's been an interesting time, and you know, it's it's been hard work. For, for everyone in our industry. But I think what's pulled it through has been the, the fact that everyone's worked so closely together. I think the fact that organisations like Alva and, you know, the amazing work Bernard's done through the last, well, forever, but for particularly his last few months, and, you know, letting people come on, to, uh, enjoy webinars or, or, or getting Bernard's daily updates when you're not a, you know, fee-paying member of Alva because you, you're not a big enough attraction. But actually the, the realisation that everyone's in it together, I think has been, it's just been amazing and I'm just so grateful for what everyone's done during this time. Yeah, it's been lovely. I think that's been one of the most wonderful things to come out of this. Um, yes. We're coming towards the end of the podcast, Paul, but I've got two more questions for you. You know, we always end up on a book recommendation, but before we get to that, I want to know, I want to know what's next. So we're in the run up now to Christmas. Yes. What, what have you been able to plan for Christmas? Because I'm guessing it's not what you were expecting to be planning. No, we were trying to push ahead with our Christmas. What we do at Christmas is we have a, um, a what we call Santa snow train. It's a land train, basically. So if you think of one of the things that potters up and down the seafront during the summer with a little sort of train, at the pretend train at the front and a few carriages, and, and the train had, had, had chugged around the, the landscape and delivers kids to the Crystal Grotto. And then the kids would wait in a tent and with the elves and they'd play games and stuff. And then the elf would invite them in to meet Santa Claus in the grotto. So you're seeing Santa in a grotto, which is perfect, of course, in many ways. Um, and then you pot about and we run it during the day and into the evening. Of course, when it ran into the evening, we needed um, lighting and stuff like that. So there was a lot of, lot of outlay of costs and a lot of concern. And also we were really struggling to make the train social distanceable. Um, our booking system wouldn't quite allow it and couldn't be made to allow without us parting for a large amount of cash, which of course was just adding more onto the, the risk. So a couple of weeks ago, we made a, a quite emotional with the team because people have spent, we knew it works, and people have spent since last Christmas planning it, you know, and getting everything in place. So actually to have to make a decision to to cull it was was really, really hard work. But we we made that call that we would pull the, the whole event and really just try and see what we can start again. Now, we've worked with a company uh, who are uh, relatively local to us by sheer chance. We've got in touch with them, like found them on the internet and then only discovered after talking to them, they were like a couple of miles, not even a couple of miles away, you know, it's like one of these three who do like large models. So we've used them for the dragons that we're having in half term and we've also had them, we had some dragons before. So they are doing a, what we're calling the Snowfari trail around the grounds and this oh. is just literally people will walk around the grounds in their own little bubble. So no train, no grotto, um, no tents awaiting. Because obviously the other thing we're looking at is well, if we have kids waiting in the tent, we've got to entertain them. Now last year, myself and a number of other um, parents, as it were, brought in out of date, not out of date, you know, toys that their kids are, their family, their kids have stopped using. So Barney's old train set was merrily set up for um, for playing, and kids were loving because they'd come in, play around a bit, and yeah. off they go. Because we couldn't let kids do that, can't be handling toys that other kids have just handled. You know, it's just so yeah. So we've got the snow fairy coming, which is going to be a, you know really well. I hope and I know cracking walk around the grounds looking at penguins and polar bears and looking for reindeer and there's some gingerbread men a big tree and then we're doing a, a sort of tea with Santa and this will be quite a limited capacity but let's mean we are doing some form of Santa event and that's just using one of our 
decking out one of our um, fun- a small fun- a function conferencing room, but in a nice sanitary way. And kids and families will come in, sitting in tables of no more than six, socially distanced, obviously, have a cup of tea. And a- it's not like an afternoon tea, but tea and a slice of cake or a mince pie. And then Santa will come in, tell a little story, and then you'll go up individually to meet him. So at least there is a, there is a Santa is not not coming to pain still. Oh. <laughs> um, the main thing will be the trail, and we'll just try and push that. And so people can walk outside, wrap up warm, just enjoy the landscape with, you know, models of animals in it all over the place. So. Yeah, I think that sounds really fun. I think that, uh, you know, that there's some Instagrammable moments there, Paul, isn't oh. there, that for, for sharing on social media, for sure. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm sure people can have a lovely time with Instagram. And, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll convert you eventually. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. Last question, which we ask all of our guests, which is, um, do you have a book that you recommend that has helped shape your career in, in some way or you just would like to recommend to our listeners oh gosh yeah I, I thought a bit about this actually and I was trying to think of a, a book I, I, I was trying to think of one to go about work but I, actually, I was going to pick one by one of your former guests actually oh. which was um, Creating Magic by Lee Cockrell um, I back in my um, Mary Rose days we had a sort of team away there I bought everybody a copy of this before um so don't, none of them can uh, you know, apply to get the book off you, Kelly. So, um, yeah, we all, um, I made everyone read it before we then had a sort of session because what was in there was so many good sort of points about, you know, all around trying to make, uh, you know, take away problems from visitors. I was so impressed with that. And that's why I've always been, you know, mentioned earlier, you know, looking at the larger attractions or companies of how they manage to do stuff and think, well, how can we do that to make things easier? I, I was so impressed with you know, the story that Lee told one of his podcasts about when they started doing um, taking the luggage from people, you know, so actually you wave goodbye to your suitcase at Heathrow now and you next see it in your hotel room, at, um, you know, just in Orlando. So just, I just know, and that's a really, really good book. It's great. It's a really good book recommendation. And um, I'm sure that when Lee listens to this episode, because I, I mean, if he isn't a subscriber, he absolutely should be. he'll be be delighted that you've recommended that so thank you so as ever if you would like to win a copy of that book then if you head over to our twitter account which is skip underscore the underscore q and you retweet this episode announcement with the comment i want paul's book then you will be in with a chance of winning it paul thank you Uh, i've loved having you on the podcast today i think it's been a brilliant episode I'd really like to say a big thank you for how, again, like everyone that comes on is 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 superb, but people are so honest and so open um, and so happy to share their experiences. So thank you for doing that today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.